This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once more. In the last program... I read quite an extensive quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama that included a section on the repulsiveness of the human body. His Holiness said, How can our bodies be clean when they are just sources of filth? Our bodies come from our parents' sperm and eggs. If we, were take, if we were to take these substances, put them on a table in front of us and look at them, any person would feel revolted. We are so attached to them because they become the source of the physical substance of our bodies, yet they themselves are nauseating. If we've lived for 40 years, for instance, think of all the food that we've eaten in those 40 long years on one side, and then all the feces and urine our bodies have turned them into on the other. How can this body be clean if it does such kind of work? Thinking about it, I was struck by the difference between this and Thich Nhat Hanh's description when he wrote in The Diamond That Cuts Through Illusion, We all enjoy leaving the city and going to the countryside. The trees are so beautiful, the air is so fresh. For me, this is one of the great pleasures of life. In the countryside, I like to walk slowly in the woods, look deeply at the trees and flowers, and when I have to pee, I can do so right in the open air. The fresh air is so much more pleasant than any bathroom in the city, especially some very smelly public restrooms. But I have to confess that for years I was uneasy about peeing in the woods. The moment I approached a tree, I felt so much respect for its beauty and grandeur that I couldn't bring myself to pee right in front of it. It seemed impolite, even disrespectful. So I would walk somewhere else. But there's always another tree or bush, and I felt equally disrespectful there. We usually think of our bathroom at home, made of wood, tile or cement, as inanimate, and we have no problem peeing there. But after I studied the Diamond Sutra and saw that wood, tile and cement are also marvellous and animate, I began to feel even feel uncomfortable using my own bathroom. Then I had a realisation. I realised that peeing is also a marvellous and wondrous reality, our gift to the universe. We only have to pee mindfully with great respect for ourselves and whatever surroundings we're in. So now I can pee in nature, fully respectful of the trees, the bushes and myself. Through studying the Diamond Sutra, I solved this dilemma, and I enjoy being in the countryside now even more than ever. Now, of course, it's very useful to regard our bodies as full of unclean substances and repulsive when we're trying to deal with the mind of desire and develop renunciation. We're driven both by our conditioning and our social environment to think that some human bodies are intrinsically hot while others are intrinsically meh. But if we take a minute to look a little bit more deeply, as His Holiness recommends, it becomes obvious that even beautiful people are just skin over a collection of organs, blood and gore, 
we would normally avoid, like the plague. If we laid the one we desire out on the table, all cut up into individual bits and pieces, would we still get a rush of physical heat looking at them? I don't think so. And put two people together, one gorgeous, the other repulsive. Tear the skin off each, and would we be able to tell them apart, never mind develop lust for one and a gag reflex for the other? Probably not. But that skin bag of unsavory parts is how we all are, beautiful or not. So why do we not regard all bodies in the same way, with distaste if not repulsion? However, when we investigate the nature of reality, which is the subject of the Diamond Sutra, we have to go further than disgust at the blob of sperm and the ova that make us up. We have to look deeply and see even in the stuff that comes out of our nether regions the majesty of the universe. We can look at a pile of poo and hold our noses with a face like a blobfish. But we can also recognize that the poo, being empty of inherent independent existence, can become within a very short time a rose bush with many magnificent blooms we thrust our noses at and smell with great delight. In the immediate conventional view, of course, that which goes down the toilet is repulsive and even dangerous. But in the ultimate view, it is as precious and as potent as any diamond. And that is the realization Thich Nhat Hanh came to when he considered his pee. Conventionally, we despise it as bodily waste, but ultimately, it is as much a wonder of our universe as the Milky Way. And in terms that our body is made, has made it out of water, air, and everything else we consume, it is our gift to the universe. Isn't it an extraordinary paradox? and something that really brings out the truth of the Buddha's teachings. Though because we are so caught up in this worldly existence, it is so difficult to realize. Anyway, it's a wee bit of a digression from the text we've been discussing, The Three Principal Aspects of the Path by Lama Tsongkhapa, which I guess we should get back to. However, first let's set our motivation as usual, thinking why we are participating in the program today. If it is for fame, fortune and a good life, we might be harking to the wrong radio station. I don't think this program will be much help with that. But if it's for the happiness of future lives and eventual liberation or enlightenment, then it may be. Why? Because the Buddha's teachings tell us how to train our minds to eventually free ourselves from suffering altogether, not how to get rich and famous. So let's not have a mistaken motivation from the beginning, Let's make sure that we're all going in the right direction so that we all sooner or later become Buddhas, both to ultimately benefit ourselves as well as all others. Now let's try and set that motivation at least. Thank you. We talked about the eight freedoms and ten endowments that allow us to practice the Dharma in this life. Remember, the eight freedoms are freedom from being born in a hell, as a preta, as an animal, or as a long-life god, or in a place where the Buddha has not appeared or the teachings are not available. Also, freedom from being born with wrong views, or being born deaf, dumb, blind, or mentally deficient. And then the ten endowments are being born as a human, in a place where the teachings are available, with all our sense faculties, and with faith in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Also, not having committed the five heavy actions while being born when a Buddha has appeared, has taught, and the teachings still flourish, 
they are followed and practiced. Also, practitioners can rely on supporters and benefactors. Now, most beings do not have all these conditions and so find it very hard to practice the Dharma. But even those beings blessed with the best conditions, sometimes out of lethargy or lack of belief, just waste the opportunity. Unless we think about our good fortune again and again, we could easily fall into that trap. Lama Tsongkhapa says that if we meditate on this, we will come to a renunciation of all that fascinates us in life. We will come to see that it cannot satisfy us as we want, and so we will want to be free of it. Then, as His Holiness recommends in his commentary, to release ourselves from the lure of future lives, we must also think of how karma follows us and throws us again and again into much worse situations than we are now experiencing. Remember his words? We need to think about the infallibility of the laws of behavioral cause and effect, the laws of karma, he wrote. To understand behavioral cause and effect in all its details is one of the hardest things. But in a simple form, from good comes good, from bad comes bad. Karma is certain. From constructive actions, happiness is certain to result. From destructive actions, suffering is certain to happen, sooner or later. Thus, if we have the causes for suffering on our mental continuums, how can we rest content and be at ease? It's like a time bomb. It's just a matter of time for it's sure to go off. If we do not remove this cause, we can never rest at peace. When we think carefully about behavioral cause and effect in this way, we develop the strong wish to remove all the causes of our suffering. It is kind of in our psyche to gloss over our unease with the thought that because it's okay now, it's going to be okay in the future. However, almost subliminally, we know that nothing is guaranteed, and no matter where we look for stability and surety, we will never find it. There's always that undercurrent of knowledge that things can go wrong at any minute. Karma tells us that our unease is right, and we can rest assured that things will definitely go wrong in the future. Just because it's okay now is no reason to think it'll be so down the track. And nothing we do now in terms of collecting food, clothes, reputation, wealth and so on will make it so. Once we really admit this to ourselves, we have a chance at finding and establishing the causes for future happiness and weakening the causes for future suffering. At least we have that chance. But if we don't admit it to ourselves and just continue to chase after material causes, leaving our minds negative stains and influences unchecked, that sense of unease will always be with us and will bloom into troubled rebirths in the future. Geshe Sonam Rinchen in his commentary says, Think about what you've learned until you gain a proper understanding and then familiarize yourself with it until it begins to influence how you think and feel. This will affect how you act and speak. When your physical, verbal and mental actions begin to accord with the Buddha's teachings, you will experience happiness and become a trustworthy example to others. He says that karma involves the complex connection between actions and their effects, and we have to think about the consequences of actions again and again to develop a conviction in this connection. When thinking about karma, he writes, there are four general points which apply to actions, whether they are positive or or negative. The Buddha said that actions and their effects are definite in the sense that each of the many different actions we perform produces its own specific and individual result. 
just as barley seed produces barley and wheat seed produces wheat. As an example, in his book Liberation on the Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, Geshe Thubten Loden tells the story of a monk in the Buddha's time who had the most exquisite chanting voice. When he chanted prayers, passers-by were captivated by his glorious voice and would stop and listen outside the temple, Geshe Loden writes. The Buddha told the king and queen that it was perhaps best not to disturb the monk. But they insisted, and so the Buddha allowed them into the chanting hall. When the royal couple saw the monk, they nearly died of shock. The owner of the most beautiful voice they'd ever heard was not the person they expected. What they saw was the ugliest person they'd ever laid their eyes on or could even imagine. They felt sick to their stomach and asked the Buddha how this could be so. Lord Buddha explained that it was the certain result of karma. The monk, in a previous life, was a labourer helping to construct an extremely large stupa, a very holy monument symbolising the enlightened mind. During the enormous project, the labourer became discouraged and openly criticised the stupa. He told the sponsor that he was completely crazy to have initiated such an impossible task. Later on, however, as the stupa neared completion, he saw the error of his criticism and by way of atonement offered a beautiful-sounding bell to adorn the top of the stupa. The Buddha explained to the royal couple that this illustrated the certain nature of karma. It was the labourer's angry criticism that caused his extreme ugliness, whereas the karma from offering the bell ripened as his glorious voice. Then, the second of the four marks of karma is that actions and their effects multiply. Geshe Sonam Rinchen uses a seed and a tree as an example. He writes, No matter how small an action is, it can produce significant results, just as one small seed can produce the root, trunk, branches, leaves, blossoms and fruit of a huge tree. We should not think that a small negative action is nothing to worry about, since it can produce significant consequences and for the same reason even the most significant good deed is worth performing. And Geshe Tupton Loden quotes a verse from the Buddha himself that goes, Even by creating small non-virtues, great suffering arises in future lives, as great destruction is caused by a small drop of poison in your system. He also uses as an example the Buddha himself, saying that in one of his previous lives, the Buddha had offered four sesame seeds to the Buddha of that time, and as a result had been born as a universal king in a subsequent life. The third quality of karma is that actions we don't do will not bring results. Again, Geshe Sonam Rinchen writes, We have a tendency to wishful thinking, but are reluctant to do what is necessary to make our wishes come true. It's no good hoping to experience the results of virtue which we have not created. If we have not performed an action, we will not experience the result. And Geshe Loden also says that we can see karma in people's circumstances during their lives. Some people put enormous effort into becoming wealthy, he writes. They study to improve their qualifications, work extra jobs, start businesses, renovate their houses and try everything they can to get rich, but somehow continue to struggle financially. The problem is not lack of aspiration or effort. It's that they have not created the karma for the success they desire. They're going about it the wrong way. 
Others seem to get whatever they want without effort. Their business soars, their career flourishes, their investments are timely and successful, and they receive pleasant gifts without ever having to ask. They accumulated the karma to make this possible. Understanding karma allows you to achieve whatever it is that you want by knowing its causes and accumulating them. Now, talking about creating the causes for riches, it might seem a bit odd with what we said earlier about not basing our happiness on wealth. Instead, we should focus on purifying our minds and developing positive qualities. That is true, but we must also have good conditions to practice the Dharma, and being destitute is not one of them. If we want such good conditions in the future, we must create the causes now. So although we may not be focused on attaining wealth and so on in this life, we can practice to get good food, shelter, clothes and so on to practice again in the future lives. Then, moving on to the fourth karmic feature, and that is that once we do an action, we will definitely reap the the result. Many, many lives might pass before the karma ripens, but it will never die unless we purify it. Writes Keshe Sanamrinchen, The only way to avoid suffering is not to create its causes or to purify the unwholesome actions we have performed. And Geshe Loden quotes the Vinaya Sutra, which says, Actions will not be wasted, even with the passing of a hundred eons. When the right causes and circumstances meet, the fruit of embodied beings will ripen. So just to summarize, the four characteristics of karma that we should be aware of are firstly that actions are definite, meaning that virtuous actions lead to happy results and non-virtuous actions will lead to suffering. Secondly, that karma increases. And thirdly, that we will not face the results of actions we have not done. And fourthly, we will have to face the result of any action we do, positive or negative, unless we purify it. We have performed all kinds of actions, and depending on which imprint is most influential at death, we will take a good or bad rebirth, writes Geshe Sonam Rinchen. What are our mental and emotional habits? Have we performed more wholesome or unwholesome actions? Only we can make an honest assessment and know the true state of affairs. No one can tell by looking at us. If we are in the habit of thinking and acting constructively, we have created positive energy and our habitual patterns of thought will assert themselves at death, since what is familiar comes to the fore when conscious control weakens. We may look and sound like practitioners, but if our hearts are empty of positive feelings and old negative habits are firmly entrenched, our prospects are bleak. He goes on to describe the results of negative actions, those in the hells being tormented by intense heat and cold, the hungry spirits wandering about, hungry and thirsty, the animals, well, we all know about the difficulties of animals, their constant fear and exploitation. And think of the worst human suffering of heat, cold, hunger, thirst and terror possible, and then magnify it many times, Geshe Sonam Rinchen says, and asks if we could bear such suffering. A certain sense of despair is a necessary condition for taking sincere refuge, he writes, and without any fear of suffering, you do not seek refuge, and without any confidence in the three jewels or convictions that they can protect you, you will not entrust yourself to them. The the Tibetans are a bit like this. They tend to rub our faces in the suffering realms, hoping that we will become so scared that we will run into the arms of the practice. 
Contrast this with Thich Nhat Hanh in a talk on our positive potential. He writes in his book, All in One, One in All, Each of you is a seed, a wonderful seed like a seed of lotus. You look a little bit bigger than a lotus seed, but you are a wonderful seed. In you, there are lots of talents. Compassion is in you. Understanding is in you. Love is in you. The capacity to smile is in you. The capacity to help other people be happy is in you. Because these wonderful virtues, these wonderful qualities have been tr- transmitted to you by your ancestors, your blood ancestors and your spiritual ancestors. If you know how to sprout and grow, you will be a very beautiful lotus pond and you will offer a lot of happiness to many, many people around you. Not only people, but animals, plants and minerals. A tiny lotus seed can make so many people happy. It has made me happy. And then he goes on, We have so many kinds of wonderful seeds within us. And if we know how to help the seeds to sprout, we'll be happy and we'll be able to offer a lot of happiness to so many people. We already have a lot of good seeds within us and we continue to receive seeds. When I look at you with loving eyes and with the eyes of trust and admiration, a good seed is planted within you. I help plant a seed of faith, of confidence, of compassion in you just by looking at you with the eyes of love and compassion. And we can help each other by planting the positive and beautiful seeds in each other. Every sound you hear can be a seed, a good seed, or a negative seed. I think it's all very well to say that we need a sense of despair to take refuge sincerely. It's all very well to play on our memory of the many negativities we've created so as to generate terror of the lower realms. But I'm personally more inspired by the sense of our potential goodness that Thich Nhat Hanh taps into. Do we really have to run to the Buddha for refuge just because we're afraid? How about taking refuge because of a sense of the great beauty and goodness that lie within us, maybe buried quite deep, but still there and waiting to be realized and nurtured? How about going to the Buddha for refuge because we recognize that he is the full flowering of our positive potential, our love, our compassion, our ability to make others happy. How about going to the Buddha for refuge because we also wish to experience and live in that full flowering. If we must consider our negative aspects and the suffering of the lower realms, we must also be inspired by our great potential for positivity and the good that we can accomplish just by being the best we can. I recently came across a quote that I'd copied down a long time ago, but which got lost in all the bits of paper that seem to trail my life wherever it goes. It's a quote from a book called A Return to Love, Reflections on the Principles of A Course in Miracles, and it's by Marianne Williamson. Now, I haven't read either this book or the bestseller A Course in Mir- Miracles, so I must have picked the quote up somewhere along the internet way. It goes... Our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do, And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. 
As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Now, excuse the slightly new-agey way it's written, but in my mind it links in with what Thich Nhat Hanh says. As we let our goodness, love and compassion shine, so we allow freedom from that for that liberation to take place in others. We can open up and give each other so much, or we can be miserly and close ourselves off. That's our choice, but the one will lead to happiness and the other to our own and others' suffering. To, con- to continue, Geshe Sonam Rinches says that to observe the law of cause and effect, we have to know what makes actions powerful. Actions which are frequently repeated or motivated by strong feelings are powerful, he writes. A good action done out of faith, love or compassion, or a negative action done out of anger, jealousy or lust, is much stronger than a similar action done without those feelings. Actions performed towards our spirit to teachers or parents and others who have been kind to us are weighty, as are actions performed in relation to those with good qualities, such as the three jewels, or towards those who are suffering. If virtuous actions are not destroyed by anger, nor negative ones by some positive counteraction, they remain powerful. These considerations are important, since we want positive actions to be strong in every way, and negative actions to be as weak as possible. For instance, a fellow worker keeps giving you tasks to do that are actually her responsibility. You feel annoyed and reluctant, but nevertheless do them out of good manners. This creates virtue which will have good consequences. However, since it falls into the category of an action which is performed, but whose full karmic momentum does not accrue to you, the result is weak. Other actions which yield weak results are those intended but not performed, as, for example, when you mean to do something good but don't actually get around to doing it. If you think of doing something positive, try to translate it into action as soon as possible with the best motivation. If you feel like doing something negative, try to refrain from carrying it out. When you have no option, at least ensure that you do the negative action with reluctance and regret. And then finally, Geshe Sonam Rinchen recommends that we observe abstaining from the ten non-virtues as a base practice. Now, I'm sure that most of us know what the ten non-virtues are, but just in case some of us don't, let's go through them briefly. They're actions motivated by attachment, aversion or ignorance, and they will without doubt result in suffering for those who do them. There are three of body, four of speech and three of mind. The three of body are killing, stealing and sexual misconduct. The four of speech are lying, slander, harsh words and gossip. And the three of mind are harmful thoughts to others, covetousness and wrong views. As you can probably well see, they all create harmful relationships between beings. For instance, no being wants to be killed. Even the cockroach crawling along my kitchen bench wants its life as much as I want mine. If I kill it through aversion, I make it suffer immensely, while that aggressive impression on my mind will definitely ripen in misery for me in the future. If the act of killing has the four components of the right object, that is the cockroach I intend to kill, the intention, here motivated by aversion, the act, that is the killing itself, and the aftermath or completion, which is my rejoicing at the killing of the insect, if these four are complete, the karma will be strong enough to throw me into another life. 
and I can be absolutely sure that that life will be very, very unhappy. And now on that note, we must go, for time is up. Thank you for being with me today, and I hope you'll tune in again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thanks, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.